Bibles, will you turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel, first chapter, Matthew chapter 1. As usual, we begin towards the end of November, at least having four Sundays, uh, some a series on the incarnation, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning I want to turn with you to Matthew chapter 1, and we will just read verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And we want to consider together the promises of incarnation. The promises of incarnation. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And just thus far in God's inspired word, let's pray together. Our Father, we have sung this morning of the, the great truth of the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of heaven rejoiced when Christ came. And how we thank you that we ought to rejoice ourselves that Jesus came into this world to save sinners to deliver us, to set us free from bondage and slavery to our sins. And so we thank you this morning for the gospel which we find even in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ at the advent of our Savior. And so, Father, as we prepare ourselves for uh, Christmas this year, we desire that we would understand these things that we have read about and what they mean for us and to us, and we ask for your help this morning by your Holy Spirit. We desire above all, Father, that our Lord Jesus Christ receive all the praise and all the glory, for he is Lord, and we worship him. And so we come into your presence now to hear your word. We know that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Let us hear your word, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some doctrines that are absolutely vital and essential to the Christian faith. To what it means to call yourself a Christian. If you say that you are a Christian, then these are the doctrines that you would affirm, that you would believe, and that you would confess. And one of those doctrines is quite clearly propounded right here in the first chapter of Matthew, the coming into the world 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we say this morning, because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the incarnation, which in and of itself is mysterious, beyond our comprehension, this conception by the Holy Spirit of the Son of God in the womb of Mary, we say that we believe that and we confess that. We don't understand everything there is to know about the incarnation, the mystery of conception. We're not required to know except to believe and to confess. And as you read Matthew's Gospel or you read Luke's Gospel, <clears throat> the account of the incarnation, all that is required is to be like Joseph and to be like Mary who simply believed the word that God gave to them about this incredible event that would take place and that would involve both of them and change their lives forever, not just their physical lives, but also their spiritual lives in a manner beyond their understanding. We have come to experience Christ if we are Christians. We are willing to confess Him. We are willing to acknowledge Him. We are willing to say, like the Bible says over and over again, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chiefest, the first, the foremost, as the Apostle Paul put it. So, when we talk about these doctrines that are so vital and essential to uh, the Christian faith, without those doctrines, we would say then there is no Christian faith. That means it becomes incumbent upon us to affirm what the Bible teaches, what the Bible proclaims, that these are the doctrines in the Word of God concerning the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I am required, and you are required this morning, to acknowledge and to confess that these are true. Because failure to do so brings the wrath and the judgment of God. And if men and women are not prepared in this day, in this time, in their lives, to acknowledge Christ as coming into the world, then they shall truly in a future day acknowledge the truth of the One who came into the world to save sinners. So we say the incarnation is precisely one of those essential, vital doctrines that we must believe and that we must confess. You cannot be a Christian without belief in the incarnation. If you were to ask me what is the best definition of the incarnation, I would say it's simply what the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 14, that the Word became flesh, the eternal Word, the Logos, the Word of God, the Son of God. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. That is essentially what the incarnation is, the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ, dwelling among us, living among us, keeping God's law for us, dying in our place, rising from the dead, ascending to the Father, to glory on high, coming again as we anticipate and we, as we hope for us. These are the foundations, the doctrines that we all love and cherish and believe. And Christmas affords us a wonderful opportunity, like Easter does when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christmas affords us, every one of us, the privilege, the opportunity to take our minds back to the first century to discover that into human history, God came 
in the flesh. So that we can all confess this morning that the incarnation is a bedrock doctrine, a foundation doctrine of our faith, of my faith, of your faith. Just as essential as the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. All vital, all crucial, all fundamental, essential doctrines to be a Christian. So to be a Christian, we say, these are orthodox doctrines. These are the doctrines of the church, the doctrines that we find in Scripture, so clearly laid out for us. To be a Christian, I must confess them. I must acknowledge them. I must believe them. So much so that we all recognize when we talk about the advent of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, that without those, the, in, the incarnation of Jesus, without that, there is no real Christmas. And yet thousands around the world, millions around the world, are going to celebrate precisely Christ, Christmas without a, a, a comprehensive understanding or even an understanding of the incarnation of what it meant for Jesus to come into the world. They don't need Jesus in Christmas. And yet Christmas is Christ. Christmas is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the foundation for what we believe about the coming into the world of Jesus is not just something that we say began in the first century, that we just read about in Matthew's Gospel. No, the foundation for what we believe is laid for us in the Old Testament Scriptures. And there where you turn back to the Old Testament, you'll find even in this passage that Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and, you shall, call, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, from Isaiah chapter 7, 14. So you discover that everything that is said of Jesus Christ, promised of Jesus Christ, is said in the Old Testament Scriptures. So much so that that means I not only believe my New Testament to be the Word of God, but I believe my Old Testament to be exactly the same, the Word of God. Now what is it about the Old Testament that makes it so special? I'll tell you what it is. It is simply that God has made promises. And He has made those promises in the Old Testament Scriptures, and those promises involve the pinnacle of all the promises of God, the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world to accomplish your salvation and my salvation. So the incarnation is the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament. In fact, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden and God is addressing Satan the serpent, he curses Satan, the serpent, and in Genesis 3.15, what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel promise is given to us, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head or crush your head, which is the cross, and you shall just simply bruise his heel. That is the first promise of God in the Bible about his son, the seed of the woman who would come to crush Satan. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when the time was right, 
Or when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were in bondage or slavery to that very law that condemned them. So the Bible teaches you and teaches me this morning that the promised coming seed of the woman, the promised offspring, is going to be none other than also the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, and the seed of David. That is what is promised in the coming of the seed of the woman. And we also believe that the promised seed of the woman, who is descended according to the flesh of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of David, is none other than the first century individual that we know to be Jesus of Nazareth. Now that is an incredible statement. That Jesus of Nazareth is nothing less than the promised seed of the woman who is descended from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, and from David. And that in the descent from those individuals who themselves received promises from God that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in that promise you find nothing less than the fulfillment of God's obligation and promise to His Word. Which you believe, I pray. And which I believe and confess. So much so that every single promise that God has ever made in the Old Testament regarding the coming Messiah is totally, fully, completely fulfilled in no one else than in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, whom we say, was born of Mary. The Apostle Paul has some interesting things to say about that when he talks to the Romans. And I'd like you to turn with me, if you can, to, first, uh, sorry, to Romans chapter 1. And it's so important to see this. He's going to open up the gospel to the Romans. But I want to show you where he begins in Romans chapter 1. In, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans... He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And now look what he says. Set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand. Notice that? So I am here to preach the gospel, the gospel which was promised beforehand, he says, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, right? That God has already set apart for the gospel this servant, this man, Paul, in the first century, a gospel that was already promised in the Scriptures in the Old Testament. And notice verse 3, what is it about? Concerning His Son, the Son of God, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So now we know that the Son of God who is in the Gospel and is the Gospel promised in the Old Testament by the prophets is descended from David according to the flesh. Well, how can that be? That can only be through normal birth, uh, a natural physical birth, Jesus, born of Mary. But will you notice verse 4? It doesn't end there according to the flesh. But it says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Well, who was 
Look at the text. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So notice Paul identifies who the one is descended from David and who the one is who is said to be the Son of God, whom God declared or promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament. Nothing less than Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't you like that little part, our Lord? Because that says that's what you confess. That means you confess Jesus was born according to the seed of David, according to the flesh. Not only that, but He is declared because He is risen from the dead to be truly the Son of God. And therefore we confess that and we believe that this morning. And so the Apostle identifies God's Son as Jesus Christ our Lord. But then there are these statements in the Bible that point out that this Son that is promised, He actually existed before all things. Not only is He promised to come according to the seed of Abraham, of Isaac, Jacob, and of David, according to the flesh, not only are there all those promises, but the Bible actually says boldly, confidently, with powerful declaration that He actually existed before all of those other people existed. Before Abraham existed, Isaac, Jacob, David. That He actually existed, and so we confess and we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is nothing less than the self-existing, pre-existing, eternal Son of God, whom John calls the Word who became flesh. That's Christmas. That's the Gospel. That's what that is all about. And that's what John tells us, do you know, about the pre-existence of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember how he opens his Gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice that He was with God, God the Father, but He, the Word, was also God the Son. He was God Himself. So we confess then, don't we, this morning, when we talk about Christmas, it's much more than just the Christmas lights and the trees and the gifts and all of those things. That's not Christmas. Christmas is the coming into this world of our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Word, the eternal Son who existed before all things, who made all things, and who has come into the world. That's why John says, the Word was God. That's what you have to believe. That's what you have to confess. Before men, before others. That's what I believe. This is what John says you must believe. The Nicene Creed puts it like this, that He was begotten of the Father before all worlds. He existed before all things. Now, we know that all things were made by Him and through Him and for Him to the glory of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the Creator as the Son. Now, you know, the world has always challenged the pre-existence of Jesus. It denies the pre-existence of Jesus because if you say that the pre-existence of Jesus is true and real, then that means you acknowledge that the Scripture is real and true from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. So that everything in the Bible, if you, if you say Jesus existed before all things, He's the Son of God, before He came into this world, then you simply affirm all the truth of the Bible, all the promises of God that God has made. 
And the Bible teaches you and teaches me quite clearly and quite confidently this morning that the Word never came into existence. Notice I didn't say Jesus of Nazareth. The Word, the eternal Word, never came into existence. The Bible simply says He was. That comes from the verb to be. So every time Jesus says, Ego a me, I am the light of the world, I am before Abraham was, all those I am statements are simply a declaration of his self-existence that he was simply who he said he was. Jesus confirmed that, didn't he, in that John 8 passage when he was confronted by the Jews who even said in the John 8 passage, we are not born of immorality. So there was a report going around about the suspect nature or events of the birth of Jesus. That somehow, 30 years later, in the ministry of Jesus, is there in the background. There was something about His birth that was different. There was something about His birth that was wrong. And they say, we are not born of immorality, so they are accusing that Joseph and Mary were involved, or Mary was involved in immorality, which we know from these, this passage and Luke's passage is not the case at all. Jesus says in that same passage, before Abraham was, before Abraham was ever thought about, before Abraham ever came into existence, I was, I have always been, and I always shall be. That's why Athanasius in his book on the Incarnation. Do you remember Athanasius, that great saint in the early centuries of the church who contra mundum stood against the world? This is what he asked this question. He says, Of what use is the existence of a creature if it cannot know its maker? What use are we doing here this morning if we cannot know God? Of what value is it if we are here singing praises to Jesus if we were to deny that He was who He said He was. There'd be no value. But this is why Jesus came into the world. This is what we affirm at the end of the year, at the, in the advent of Jesus. We affirm that Jesus came to reveal God to us. Isn't that what you see in verse 23? That He is Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God is with us. God is with us. Now, if there was ever one thing that, an, that a, a, a Jew from the Old Testament, certainly first century Jews were longing for, was to know that God was with them. That He was going to send someone to deliver them. Messiah. A promised one. But what we discover, and what we read about here, is that we know two things. Number one, we now know from the Bible that Jesus is God. And number two, we know Jesus is man. And we know that Jesus is fully God, completely God, totally God, and at the same time, Jesus is fully man, totally man, completely man. We refer to His natures as divine or human, or the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you confess at Christmas. That's what you say you believe this time of year. So these are the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ, which the incarnation brings in adding to Him His humanity. Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, possessing the divine nature of deity, takes to Himself, adds to His person, a second nature, the nature of man, the human nature. He always was God, but He became a man. 
so that he might accomplish the purposes of God, that there be a second Adam to rescue us from the fall of that first man, the man Adam, who brought ruin upon us. Now you can already see right here in Matthew that Matthew's thinking about these things. Because look what he says in verse 21. Gabriel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Joseph would immediately connect Yeshua, the name Jesus, with the explanation that is given. And then this same son, verse 23, born to Mary, is not only called Jesus, but is called Emmanuel. So here in the name Jesus, I see a fully human being born to Mary. And then the same son, born to Mary, verse 23, is said to be Emmanuel. Is said to be God. So that the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess, is fully God, fully man, the God-man who stands for us and represents us. Or to put it another way, a simple way, God has come in the flesh for me, for me, for you. That's what I believe. That's what Matthew is asking you to believe and confess. That Jesus is fully man and that He is fully God, and that only as fully man and fully God will He save you. You know why that is? That, that puts a necessity upon the incarnation of the Son of God. Because it's Jesus who became a man in order to bear the wrath of God, and so take upon Himself what naturally is ours and falls to us, the wrath and the judgment of God. Only a man perfect and righteous can bear that wrath laid upon Him in our place. That's why Jesus came into the world to die for us. I say to all of us this morning, that's what you must know. That's what you need to understand. So much so that you go about your business tomorrow and the rest of your life in the light of that truth. That when you have customers or you meet people, that you would confess to them that you are a believer in this Jesus of Nazareth who is also the eternal Son of God who came into this world to save me, to forgive me, to deliver me. I mean, that's what I must know and understand and then live my life in the light of this glorious truth. So Christmas is not about giving and receiving among ourselves. though That's what we've made it. But that is not Christmas. Christmas is God giving to us, His Son. God's gift to us. And it's only about God's gift to us. Now it's possible, you know, you could be quite an expert on the theology of the Incarnation and have absolutely no living, saving, true faith in the Son of God. You can know certain things. You can read Matthew and say, oh, I can understand that and yet have absolutely no faith in Christ Himself. That's why Melanchthon, Luther's famous friend, he said, we do better to adore the mysteries of deity than to investigate them. This is a mystery, isn't it? I can't explain to you. The Bible doesn't explain to us. It just says, there it is, believe it. That Mary's pregnancy is by conception of the Holy Spirit. So how does the Son of God, eternal, take to Himself human nature, 
in the womb of Mary. The only explanation is the Holy Spirit, who is God. It's God who did it. That's the mystery. And what are we to uh, say regarding God and this mystery? I believe it, because God says it. That's all that's required to believe. God said it. You know, Matthew's gospel is really a great place to begin any consideration of Advent themes, or Christmas themes, or the Incarnation. It is the first gospel in our Bibles, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew is put in the first place. In all of the narratives about Jesus and His birth, Matthew gives us what we have read this morning. So here's the first gospel. And he really he gives us information that for him begins, or has a beginning, in the history of of what he's about to tell us. So he begins with a history lesson. What is his history lesson? His history lesson is verses 1 through 17. What is verses 1 through 17 about? It's about the history of Jesus. So look in verse 1, Matthew 1, 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book, the record. There it is. This is a record, a legal record of fathers and sons. Notice verse 2. Abraham is the father of Isaac, Isaac's the father of Jacob, and so on. Right? So starting with Abraham in verse 2, Abraham the father of Isaac, and ending with Jesus in verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, born to Mary. This is the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ of Jesus. But it's also the genealogy of Joseph, right? Because it says in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This is not, I repeat, this is not the genealogy of Mary. This is the legal uh, record of Joseph's descendancy back to, Abra back to David and back to Abraham. Mary's genealogy, we believe, you'll find in Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 3. And Joseph and Mary, their genealogy changes with the, with the sons of David so that Solomon stands in the line of Joseph and Nathan, the son of David, stands in line for Mary as you read in Luke's Gospel. And so David was the father of Solomon. You read here in verse 6 of Matthew 1. And Nathan was the son of David in Luke chapter 3 and verse 31. You know what's interesting about Matthew and Luke's genealogy? The one talks about fathers and their sons, and the other one talks about sons and their fathers. Luke's goes all the way back, the son of the son of the son of the son of Adam. And Matthew comes from Abraham, the father, the father, the father, all the way down to Joseph. And then of Mary was born Jesus. Now what is Matthew doing in verses 1 through 17? He is putting what he is about to say in verses 18 through 25, the birth narrative of Jesus, he's putting that into the historical events that preceded verse 18. The historical events that involve verse 17, if you look at verse 17, Abraham to David, David to the deportation to Babylon, and the deportation to the Christ or to Messiah himself. What is this deportation to Babylon? It's nothing less than the exile in 586 into Babylonian captivity. And Jeconiah is mentioned twice in the record. And you'll notice Matthew uses 
this particular way of trying to help you memorize some things. Fourteen generations. Three, fourteen generations. And that may be just his way of recording in a symmetrical order or threefold division so that you can see a historical record in simple terms. Matthew's point is to establish Jesus as the legal heir to the throne of David. Jesus has claim to the throne of David legally because Joseph is going to be his legal guardian, his legal father. But that's also the promises of God in the Old Testament that are fulfilled that go all the way back to Abraham. In you, Abraham, and your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And the promised offspring, as we know from the book of Galatians, is not Isaac, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So this is a record that is simply showing in verses 1 through 17 the claim that Jesus would have from Joseph's point of view to the throne of David. From Luke's gospel chapter 3, he has the legal claim, the physical claim to the throne of David through Mary's line back through Nathan, David and so on. Now I want you to notice that Matthew is very clear to show that Jesus is not the literal physical descendant of Joseph but is only a legal descendant. Look at verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You'll notice that the little phrase says, of whom Jesus was born. That does not refer to Joseph. That refers to Mary. So the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom? Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He is called the Christ. And you'll notice in verse 18, sorry, yeah, verse 18, the birth of Jesus took Christ took place this way. His mother had been betrothed, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So now we know that this pregnancy, this conception, is not natural. It's not like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way down, father to son, father to son. It's not Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Jesus has no physical connection to Joseph, but is simply through Mary. He was born of Mary, who is found to be with child uniquely, miraculously by the Holy Spirit himself. Now, why does Matthew do that? I mean, what, who likes to read genealogies, right? There are names here that you don't even, you might never remember again in your life. So why does he give us this list of fathers and sons and fathers and sons and fathers and sons? Because this is a historical record. And to Jewish minds, historical records and genealogical records are very, very important. They lay claim to certain things. So what he is simply establishing is that the one who is born of Mary and in who is under the legal guardianship of this man, Joseph, is, look at verse 16, said to be the Christ... And in verse 17, said to be Christ in verse 16, he is called Christ. And in verse 17, he is said to be the Christ. Now, why does he say Christ and the Christ? Because he is making a reference to the promises of God in the Old Testament about Messiah, about the anointed of God, that the promised seed of Abraham and the promised seed of David is nothing less than the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, who is Jesus born of Mary. Mary's child is then the long-awaited, 
long-anticipated Messiah, Christ, also known as the Anointed One, our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to consider a number of further important facts with you. Will you notice in verse 18 that the conception that took place in Mary's womb, verse, verse 18, is simply stated, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew doesn't explain that. Matthew doesn't go into a long explanation. Now let me tell you how this happened. He just tells us in simple language that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So he just states it. But will you notice that he puts it to us, to you and to me this morning, in a very human context that we can relate to. It's in the context of a betrothal. Look what he says in verse 16. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Well, what way? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So what is this betrothal? That's like our engagement period. But it's far more serious and more significant than what we call an engagement today between a boy and a girl or a man and a woman. In fact, the Jewish betrothal period is so serious in the marriage of a Jewish man and a Jewish woman that they are already in the betrothal, in the engagement, regarded as being husband and wife, though no sexual relations have taken place. Now you can see that in the text. If you look at verse 19, and her husband, but they're only betrothed. But he, he is already regarded because it's so important and so serious, it's already as if marriage has taken place in its entirety, but this betrothal period is part of the Jewish marriage ceremony she, that her husband, Joseph, is regarded as her husband. And if you look at verse 24, it says he took his wife. She's already regarded in the betrothal period, they are, as husband and wife. It's very important, by the way, in, in developing the doctrine of divorce and remarriage in the New Testament. It hinges on this Jewish betrothal period. So, what can we say about Joseph and Mary before this happened? Well, they're engaged. They're like any other young couple anticipating marriage with high hopes and with joys, right? Hopes for their future together. Oh, how those hopes are dashed in a moment when she is found to be pregnant. And Joseph doesn't, is not told when he first finds out that this is by the Holy Spirit. It's only in this passage later that he is told because he's considering divorce. Because you see in the Jewish betrothal period, you could divorce because if that final marriage ceremony takes place, then there was to be no divorce and no remarriage for them. So their high hopes are all dashed to the ground when Joseph discovers the pregnancy of Mary. Now, I, you know, I can only imagine the human element in all of that. Matthew just downplays it, except to say that he was considering to divorce her quietly. Now, you know, dear congregation, out of wedlock pregnancies today, to our shame, to our shame, are commonplace, and spoken of as normal, when in reality they are not normal, they're not according to God's prescription and not according to God's way. So out of, 
out-of-wedlock pregnancies used to carry stigma and shame attached to it not too long ago in our history. But certainly in Jewish history, in a Jewish betrothal period, it is massive because the death penalty can actually be exacted for adultery. And that's how it would have been considered. It would have been considered adultery because they are viewed as legally married, though it's not fully complete yet, the Jewish marriage system. So, today no longer do we feel this embarrassment or this shame. In fact, I dare say, even as Christians, we have grown used to it. Now, we say it's wrong, we, down, we, we say it's, it's against what God says, but we have grown used to it. We're not ashamed by it. The Apostle Paul reminds us that there are sins in society that we have no business speaking about even. They're so serious before God, and yet these sins are paraded and out there for everyone to see. And even the church speaks so openly and flippantly, if I can put it, now, that's a bad word. It's casually is probably a better word about the sins of society because we've grown used to them. Let's ask ourselves this question, what does it mean to be holy? As a Christian, I know what it means for God to be holy as far as I can understand the holiness of God. But what does it mean for you and me to be a holy Christ, a Christian, a holy person? You see, I think we've lowered our standard of holiness to here so that I can handle it. When God says, be holy even as I am holy. Be like me. I mean, that's, that's a... That's up here, but we, we want to be down here so that we can appear appealing to society, so that we're not too crushing of society. It's not us Christians, the church that crushes society. It's God. It's God who has rules and laws. So for Joseph, a Jew in the first century, to find himself in this very embarrassing situation, to say nothing of Mary... Let's not forget Mary's situation. Because this has already happened in Luke's Gospel, her pregnancy. And now in Matthew's Gospel, Joseph finds out about what Mary has already found out herself. What about Mary? I mean, just remember that because this happened, they will grow up in a Jewish society that knows there is something about the birth of this son that's illegitimate in their eyes. Or is adulterous in their eyes. We are not born of illegitimacy like you. They accuse Jesus. Imagine the shame. Taking it with you all your life. This is Mary. And what does she say? Be it unto me as you have said. I believe. What will Joseph say at the end here? He will do exactly as the angel tells him because he's been relieved in his mind of the embarrassing situation that's been explained to him. So notice what Joseph does, right? It says in verse 19, being a just man. He's a believer. He's a righteous man. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolves to divorce her quietly. So he limits his legal options to divorce and even particularly to quiet divorce. No public shame. He wants to protect her. I mean, what kind of man is this? He's a just man. He's a good man. He's a godly man, and he's grieved, and he's hurt, and he doesn't understand how Mary could have done this, when of course Mary has done nothing, except to be the servant of the Most High God. 
Will you notice one thing more about Joseph's resolve to divorce her quietly? He could do that because it's the Jewish betrothal period. If it was already consummated and marriage, divorce would have been a very different matter in Jewish society altogether. And Jewish options, of course, involve public disgrace, involve stoning to death for adultery, man or woman, because that's the law of God. But Joseph, as he thinks about Mary, he wants to protect her. He wants to care for her. So he resolves to divorce her quietly because he's a righteous man, verse 19. He's a just man. And it's just as he's pondering that very dilemma about what, can, what, what am I going to do. It's just as he's thinking about that, that one night God sends a messenger to him, just like he did to Mary earlier. How gracious of God to intervene in the man's life. How gracious of God. And notice how Gabriel, the angel, we believe it's Gabriel, in verse 20, he reinforces the graciousness of God when he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear, Joseph. And you'll notice when he says, Joseph, son of David, what is he doing? Gabriel is connecting Joseph to verses 1 through 17, the line that begins in Abraham and goes through David down to Joseph himself. You, Joseph, are legal heir of David's throne. And in the same way, you're going to extend that legality to the son of Mary, who will be born to Mary. So he's... He wants to protect Mary, doesn't he? From scandal, from reproach. Which is going to be difficult to do because they have to live their lives now in the light of this pregnancy. He says, verse 19, he was unwilling to put Mary to shame. That word shame means public expo exposure, a public disgrace. He didn't want that. So this man who feels he's been betrayed discovers now that he's actually in the plan of God and the purpose of God and the promises of God. Verses 1 through 17. That's why the genealogy is there. To confirm for us that Joseph, Joseph is in the plan and the purpose of God based on the promises of God. And what I like about Joseph, you know, from this text, is that he doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say like Zechariah says, how can this be since I'm an old man for John the Baptist's birth? He doesn't do any of that, Right? In fact, verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did. As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife. So all he does, whatever Gabriel says to him here, that is sufficient to satisfy him about Mary. He doesn't ask, well, how, can, how, do you, how, do you get, how does a baby get conceived by the Holy Spirit? He doesn't ask that. He knows now that whatever is taking place in Mary is not of man, but is of God. And so he believes. And he takes his wife, he completes the betrothal, has no relations with her, but will have children with her after Jesus does, as the New Testament teaches us. So what is this about Joseph? I see two things. I see faith. He believed. I mean, all the angel says is this is what's happened. He believes it. But he doesn't just believe it intellectually, does he? He acts on it. 
Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. So he does exactly what God asks him to do through the angel. He doesn't dispute. He doesn't debate. He believes and he obeys. May I say, dear congregation, that that is what you and I are called upon to do this morning, to believe and to then obey. That is the gospel response, isn't it? To believe. Not just to believe, because there are many who say they believe but don't obey. No, to believe and then to obey. Now, you know, here's the thing. As wonderful as this news, and it was wonderful news to Joseph, right? As wonderful as Gabriel's news to Joseph about Mary's condition is, that it's of the Holy Spirit, the real message of this text, the full message of this text, is about the child. It's not about Joseph, and it's not about Mary. It's about the child. So, notice two things. Number one, what this child will do. Verse 21, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Ah, now here's a good question to ask yourself. Have I been saved from my sins? Or am I still in my sins? Big difference. Big difference. Have you been saved from your sins? There's only one way that takes place. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So, first thing we notice is what this child will do. It's explained by his name. You shall call his name Jesus because the word, the name Jesus means Savior. So he will save his people from their sins. By the way, saving people from their sins is the heartbeat of an Old Testament message. That's what the Old Testament is all about. The history of God's people being saved by God. God intervening, like in, Exod, like in Egypt, in the Exodus. Like bringing back exiles from Babylon. God always redeeming, always saving. A Savior is coming. That's the Old Testament. The great Deliverer, the great Messiah, the Christ. Why? Because people are sinners, right? I'm a sinner. I'm a great sinner. I'm the worst of the worst sinner. That's what Paul confesses. I confess that. That's exactly what I am. I am the worst of the worst. But Jesus saves the worst of the worst. He came to save the chiefest of sinners. Are you not the chiefest of sinner? If you don't know that, you don't know Christ. Because the one thing that happens in salvation, you get a good picture of what you really like, what your heart is like, what your mind is like, what your life is like, and has been from the womb. Because we are conceived in sin. Because of Adam and Eve's sin. So, a Savior's coming to save people who are sinners, who sin, cannot help themselves. They sin every day. That's the first thing, what this child will do. But secondly, who the child is, right? Look at verse 23. Well, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill the Old Testament, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah 7, 14, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we don't have the time to look at Isaiah 7, verse 14 this morning, but I'll just tell you that the context of Isaiah 7 is that there is oppression coming upon the king of Israel, of Judah, I should say. And there are, there are threats that have been made. Who will deliver him? A son will be born. Remember how Ahaz asked 
Ask God for a sign, Isaiah says. I will not test God. I will not ask God for a sign. Well then, God will give you a sign. And here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the in-text context of Isaiah 7 is that there would be a promised deliverance through before the son had reached a certain age of Judah from the oppression from Israel in the north and Syria in the north. But that's not the promise. The promise is 700 years in the future. Right here. When this is said to be the fulfillment of the promise made to Isaiah or to Ahaz the king. So notice the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the woman and her seed, her offspring, Mary's child, promised in Isaiah 7.14. So I discover two things now. Number one, Jesus saves me. And number two, Jesus keeps me. Or Jesus is with me. Right? Because He's God. He's Emmanuel. God with us. So He saves me by bearing my sins. And He forgives me. And He delivers me. And then I discover that He's with me. Always. He keeps me. does not abandon those whom He saves. He keeps His people. Not only saves them from their sins, but He keeps them. And is He able to keep them? Yes, because He is God with us. Alright. Have you got those two benefits? The salvation of Jesus and the presence of Jesus, God with us. You see, in order to get the benefits of the promises, these incarnational promises that are just laid upon the text here, in order to get that, I am called upon this morning to believe that. And to say, that's true. And that's true for me. Jesus died for me. I am the great sinner. He died bearing my sins. He bore the wrath that was due me. The penalty that was mine. And now that I am His, He keeps me. He is with me. Always, until the end. And I'm called upon to believe that this is the gospel. That Jesus is my Lord, my Savior. That I truly am. A great sinner standing in need of a great Savior. What greater Savior can there be than the Son of God? God with us. This Lord Jesus Christ. And I must also believe this morning. Not just that. But I must believe without question that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That He exists in flesh. You know, one of the old heresies from centuries ago was to deny that the Son of God was flesh or that he came in the flesh. So a, a character from long ago, a heretic by the name of Marcion, he said Christ's humanity is just a phantom. How do you get a phantom out of Matthew chapter 1? Just a genealogy. How do you get a phantom out of someone born of Mary, normal birth, except unique? How do you get a phantom? Jesus is no phantom. Jesus is a real man. Because unless he's real man, he can't save you, can't die for you, can't give his life for you, can't rise from the dead again for you. So he is in the flesh, really of flesh. See, I have his genealogy, and I have these promises that are made, and I confess them that this Lord Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, actually came in the flesh in the first century when the time was right, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, God sent His Son for me, to deliver me, to save me, to give me new life. 
And the incarnation, this mysterious conception in the womb of Mary is established on the promises of God in the Old Testament. So much so that the coming into the world of Jesus was not to rule and reign immediately over men and women, but to die for them in their place. And based on his death and his resurrection, now he will reign forever and ever. So our Lord Jesus was born to die for us, to save us in and from our sins, from our lusts, from our hatred, from our wickedness, from our love of sin, from our lies that we tell every day, from those thoughts and desires that rise up in your heart and in your mind, from those jealousies, from those disorders, from whatever it is that rages in your heart and in your mind, Jesus died for that, for those sins. In fact, not just died for them, bore them in his own body on the tree for one simple reason, that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. And you can only do that if you believe the gospel, if you've come to the cross, have surrendered yourself to this King Jesus, this Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make us holy as we sing in the Christmas carols. So I say to you this morning, this is the place to begin. Matthew chapter 1, it's a good place to begin, right? Joseph believed the promises of God. There's only one question. Do you believe the promises of God for yourself? Let's pray together. Our Father, how grateful and thankful we are for the Christmas themes that we have considered this morning. The advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming into the world of the Son of God. We desire this morning, Father, that we would acknowledge what we know to be true of ourselves, that we're sinful and that we need saving and only Christ Jesus can save us. That's why he came into the world to save us, to save his people from their sins, to save sinners, to give them everlasting life, to give them righteousness and hope, to give them, to give them new life. And we pray that each one of us this morning might know that to be the truth for ourselves that we ourselves might confess that this Jesus of Nazareth is nothing less than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to save us. That's what Christmas is about. So help us as we prepare ourselves for December and Advent and the coming into the world of Jesus. Help us to prepare ourselves and confess these things and to find our joy every day in the truth that Jesus was born to save us from our sins. So we praise you and give you thanks now and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.